You're listening to the Restless Wanderer podcast by Paul Coulter, and this is part eight of a series in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I'm away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ's, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ's, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up, and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters, for they say his letters are witty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, But when they measure themselves up by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. But we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. For we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast without limp beyond limit in the labours of others, but our hope is that your faith increases, or as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged, so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you, without boasting of work already done in another er- another's area of influence. Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord, for it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commands. We'll pause our reading at the end of chapter 10. Now, as we've been working through the book of uh, 2 Corinthians, we've seen that the Apostle Paul uh, has to make a defence of his ministry. And that's because there are certain people uh, who are coming to the church in Corinth and who are commending themselves, as he puts it here. And the question of who is approved by God, who should be trusted, who should be listened to, becomes important. Uh, The heart of Paul's argument is the fact that he is an apostle of Christ. He is someone who has been appointed by Christ with authority. And Paul routinely describes himself in the opening of his uh, New Testament letters as an apostle of Christ. An apostle is one who is appointed with authority as a representative, a bit like an ambassador, to use that word, that Paul uses of his ministry in 2 Corinthians. Because, of course, an ambassador speaks for the nation that sends it. And with the authority, when the ambassador speaks on behalf of that nation, uh, then you take that as the, the word of that nation. Well, it's unusual for Paul to talk about his authority. It's unusual for him to have to make that case. Normally, when he describes himself as an apostle of Christ, uh, being known to the church, he is accepted as such. 
But uniquely here in 2 Corinthians, he actually uses the word authority to describe himself. Verse 8, he says, even if I'm boasting a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave. But notice, so, so he's saying the Lord has given him authority. That is inherent in the New Testament idea of what an apostle is. Now, I know that Christians have used the word apostle in other ways. Sometimes it's used kind of to mean a missionary, particularly when we're talking about church history. People will call someone like Patrick the Apostle to the Irish because he was one of the first, not the first, but one of the first to bring Christianity to the island that I live on. And you'll find that with uh, stories of missionaries who went to different parts of the world. I don't think that's a helpful usage of the term. Uh, it tends to reflect the, the basic meeting, meaning of apostle or apostolos, the Greek word, which means someone who is sent, just like the word post, to post apostolos, somebody who is posted or sent um, to a certain place. But when the word is used in the New Testament, particularly of apostles of Christ, people sent by Jesus, it carries the idea of authority. Again, some churches today use that term apostle to describe leaders with responsibility over a number of churches. There are a few uh, new, relatively new um, networks of churches that function that way. I think that is really unhelpful because, again, it confuses this idea of authority. Um, as I read the New Testament, I don't believe that there are individuals uh, who have the authority that the apostles that Jesus appointed did because an apostle saw was a witness of the risen Lord Jesus and appointed directly by him. And in 1 Corinthians 15, the apostle Paul describes, says that the Lord Jesus appeared to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me as someone born uh, out of due time. In other words, the with Paul, the, the number of apostles was complete. So whatever uh, we think about leaders today, I don't think we should call them apostles. But anyway, back to Second uh, Corinthians chapter 10, there's a, a, a question clearly in Paul's mind about whether the Corinthians will receive him with authority, will, will recognise his authority, will follow his guidance, or whether they will be led uh, to follow those who commend themselves to them. And as we go into the next few chapters, we'll see that Paul, as he's done earlier in Second Corinthians, talks again about his weakness um, and that's one of the issues in this passage, that there was this sense that people were saying, well, you know, Paul's letters are weighty and strong. But in person, verse 10, he's, he's weak. His speech is of no account. Now, it's difficult to know the reality about this. Is it true that Paul wasn't actually a great preacher, a great speaker? I mean, he certainly does a lot of speaking and preaching in the book of Acts. Um, and it uh, you know seems that that preaching is effective, that it connects with people and is well received. Um, so it's possible that, that this is simply a rumour that goes around or, or that it's saying that by contrast with the false apostles, the super apostles, Paul didn't amount to much. So he might have been a great speaker, but their techniques, their emphasis of rhetorical techniques and their way of talking particularly about themselves was more impressive than Paul. They might have had more what we would call charisma or maybe they focused more on themselves whereas Paul focused more on the Lord Jesus. 
or it could be that Paul wasn't that great a, a preacher. I guess that's a, a possibility, although, as I say, it seems unlikely. I think it's much more to do with the contrast between him and the others. And and this was, in a sense, a way of playing Paul down. It's like, well, yes, I mean, your letters, his letters are a bit frightening. Verse nine, I don't want to appear to be frightening you, he says. But, um, you know, his his bark is worse than his bite is basically the message. And Paul says, no, 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 we are the same with you. We will be the same when we are present with you, verse 11. And really, we're not trying to measure ourselves, verse 12, by those who are commending themselves. Because actually measuring yourselves by one another in comparison shows ignorance, shows you're without understanding. That's a really important message for the church today. You know, I've, I've, I've thought about this and so much of our culture in the Western world is based upon competition and comparison. Our education system is based on competition to get the best grades in the exams. And of course, getting the best grades opens up new opportunities to you. Employment is based on competition. Business is based on competition. And lo and behold, what do we do in our spare time? Well, we do competitive sports or watch competitive sports there as well. Competition is deeply, deeply ingrained. Now, where did it come from? Well, I don't think that there was competition before the fall. I don't think it's part of God's good intention for creation. I'm not saying it is always wrong. That's a wider question. Um, it, it does seem to work in the world that we live in. The competition that fuels capitalist economies seems to generate a certain degree of wealth, even if it struggles to share that wealth fairly. Um, certainly, competitive sports can be enjoyable uh, to watch and to participate in, although they also have a dark side, don't they? Um, competition for education and employment might be a lot better than alternatives of nepotism and just... Uh, only having the opportunities that come from the family you're born in. Uh, although, of course, those systems still, much as they're, they're supposed to be fair and give a level playing field, often don't because social capital from the connections of your family still carries a lot of weight. But anyway, um, competitiveness is there widespread in our culture. And so it's really no surprise that it creeps over into how we think about church. Churches market themselves by distinction from others, telling you how good the things that they offer are, how good their services are. Come and try it out. People in ministry get caught in comparing themselves, wondering, am I as gifted as or am I more gifted than? And, and uh, sometimes that does bad things to the heart. It leads to pride and a desire for recognition. It could lead us to put other people down because we fancy position above them. But in Christian ministry, competitiveness ought to have no place. Churches are not in competition with one another. For the attention of people in the modern Western world, their comp competition is not other churches, but entertainment. Streaming services, theatres, uh, movies, pleasure, it's these things that compete. And, and we ought not to be in competition with each other at a spiritual level because the enemy is not the church down the road. The enemy is the evil one. These 
false apostles were in competition with one another. Each one of them wanted their share of the market, their profile, their speaking engagements, their influence over particular churches. And it's against that background that Paul says uh, two vitally important things. First of all, in verses 1 to 6, that the nature of our battle is not according to the flesh. It's not according to the physical things, the, the body, the things that we can see. We're not waging war in that way against our fellow human beings. No, our war is against ideas that are opposed to the knowledge of God, values and worldviews that are false. Verse 5 is a great uh, um, verse for those who are engaged in, in, in um, apologetics and cultural engagement, as I am through the Centre for Christianity and Society. Um, destroying arguments, showing the deficiencies in false ways of thinking, destroying lofty opinions, proud opinions that are raised against the knowledge of God, taking every thought captive to Christ. It's a great way to think about the way we engage with other religions and philosophies. But actually, the in the context, this is not really about engaging with non-Christian ideas, but with distortions of Christian thinking. In the church, the, the, the competitiveness that is utterly worldly that creeps into our thinking and our behaviour, that's what we need to fight against more than anything else. The worldviews that slip in, that uh, distract us from the gospel, that take our focus away from Jesus and on to charismatic leaders like the super apostles Paul is concerned about. Paul says, look, verse 6, we'll be ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. In other words, he's not primarily in this context talking about the battle of ideas with the world, but the battle for the minds uh, of the believers, for their thinking. Paul is entreating them. It's lovely the way he says that, though, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Of course, the Lord Jesus said, come to me, find rest for your soul, take your, my yoke upon you and learn from me because I am gentle and meek and lowly, humble. That's the reference here. That's Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30. By the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Paul wants to be gentle with them. He wants to be humble before them. But he does have to say strong things to them. Of course, the Lord Jesus did that as well, didn't he? When he turned over the tables or when he uh, spoke woe to the Pharisees. There is a time for bold and direct speech, even though our hearts want to be gentle with people. And then the second vitally important thing that Paul says in verses 13 to 18 um, is about areas of influence. You see, if, if these super apostles, these false apostles were competing and trying to gobble up market share, Paul says, no, the, the right way to behave is to recognise that each uh, preacher and teacher and uh, has an area of influence. I, I don't think what he's saying here is what some interpret this as meaning, that apostles each had their own area of influence. When Paul wrote 1 Corinthians a number of times, he talked about um, the practice in all the churches of God, not just the churches Paul was involved with. Uh, he writes to the church in Rome, even though it's not a church that he founded, and he, he teaches them and he expresses his desire to come to them. 
So it's not the case that Paul never went to churches that he had not founded. It's not saying that the world had been divided up by the apostles into areas. It's not even saying that Paul was distinctively the apostle to the Gentiles, although that was his particular calling. And he, he, he highlights that elsewhere, in Galatians in particular. But actually, I think what Paul is saying here is that they already have a relationship with him. He was the one who came with others to be the first to preach the gospel there. Uh, and they should be faithful to that message. This is He's not trying to lead them away from these other teachers, but to say, stay faithful to us. Stay connected to us. We want to increase our area of influence among you, verse 15, as your faith increases. In other words, the area of influence is not simply a geographical territory, although that might be part of it. Um, the, the lands beyond you, verse 16, you know, by, by connecting with them uh, more effectively, he, he wants to be able to spread that influence further afield. But it's also a, a deeper area of influence, a greater influence over more of their lives, um, that they would be more increasingly faithful to the gospel. That's what Paul is concerned. It's both quantitative growth, if you like, uh, to new areas, but also qualitative growth in the maturing of those who are already Christians. And those two belong together in Paul's mission. But Paul has used the word boasting. You might have noticed that a number of times. It's a, a favourite word of Paul's. It's only used a couple of times outside Paul's letter in the New Testament, Paul's letters. Uh, and of all his letters, 2 Corinthians is the one where he uses it the most. And, and it, it has that idea of confidence, being confident in something, being proud of something. Not pride in the negative sense, but, but proud of something. And of course, for Paul, he says this elsewhere, that, for, that all he will boast in is the cross of Jesus, by which the world is crucified to him. So ultimately, his boast is in God. But here he talks about boasting in the authority that has been given. But he says down in verse 17, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. The question here, the key question is not how impressive a person is on their CV or in their personal charisma or in how they commend themselves to others or how gifted they appear to be. The question is, do they give the glory to Christ? Are they approved by him? So we can take the gifts that God gives and the strength of personality that he might have given us as well. We could use that utterly for our own glory and not at all for the glory of Christ. What matters is being approved by Jesus. And Paul is saying he is one who is approved by the Lord because he was appointed by him with authority. Let's read on then, 2 Corinthians 11 verse 1. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the Spirit deceived Eve by his coming, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I'm not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. 
Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I didn't burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And what I do, I will continue to do, in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. We'll end our reading for this episode at verse 15 of 2 Corinthians 11. So Paul's continuing very much in the same vein. He says it's it's foolishness the way he's talking about boasting about his authority. But but bear with me. He tells them that the motivation is this. I have a divine jealousy for you. Jealousy tends to be seen as a bad idea, a bad word, doesn't it? But it has a proper context and a proper place. As a married man, it's right that I should be jealous for the affections of my wife. I don't want her to be showing the same affection to other men. And thankfully, my wife is a godly woman. She's not. Um, I've never been worried about that in her case. But she should be right to be jealous for my affections as well. It wouldn't be right if I was um, flirting with another woman or worse. And uh, so Paul is, is, is using that image of marriage. He says, I betrothed you, but not notice to himself. I, I, I love this because, of course, one of the risks and temptations in Christian ministry is that we form a following after ourselves, disciples of ourselves. People who are dependent on ourselves. People who look up to us and follow our every word, who do what we ask them simply because it's us who ask them, who think that we are almost infallible or don't make mistakes, that our teaching is the definitive teaching. People who maybe we have cared for and they've never grown to a point of uh, independence or interdependence where they too are able to serve others. And the danger is that I could keep people in that place, keep entertaining them with my sermons rather than teaching them how to study the word for themselves or developing teachers from among them. Keep them dependent on me for their pastoral care because that makes me feel needed. Well, Paul says, no, no, it's not himself that he has betrothed them to. He has betrothed them to one husband. It is Jesus that they belong to. And he is determined that they will remain faithful to the true Jesus. The, the, the right gospel. That's vitally important for him. He's worried that they're going to be led astray just like the serpent who is, of course, Satan, deceived Eve. He, he wants them to stay loyal to Jesus, faithful to him. And Paul says, look, you know, I might be unskilled in speaking, even if that's true. And again, I'm not sure that it was strictly true, but uh, he's not inferior in knowledge compared to the super apostles. He knows what he's talking about and he's shown that to them. 
I noticed then in verses 7 um, to 11, there's an issue here to do with money. And this may help to explain why the super apostles or the way that they boasted about themselves. They obviously were gathering money. They were prepared to take money. Perhaps even they were the earliest version of the health and wealth prosperity preachers, that false message that says, if you give us your money, then God will bless you in return and you will get rich, promising richness, riches to every Christian. That's simply untrue biblically. The riches that are promised are not in this life, but in the eternal kingdom of God and the new creation. But ministry, and you see this in a number of places in the New Testament, the warning that we shouldn't do ministry from a desire to get rich. It's there in Paul's letters to Timothy and Titus as a quality of overseers or elders that they mustn't uh, be greedy for dishonest gain. It's there also in First uh, Peter 5 where Peter writes to the elders and says that that mustn't be the motivation. Uh, and these false apostles clearly were taking money and Paul says look we humbled ourselves. W was I wrong to do that? Was I sinning not to charge you for the gospel? It's an irony that actually because Paul gave them the gospel for free and received financial support from the churches further north in Greece, in Macedonia, um, those churches supported him so that he didn't have to, to receive money or work for money in Corinth. But these false apostles were twisting that and saying that, you know, Paul's not worth paying. His, his message and his preaching is so inferior. We are the real deal. And, and so and the fact that we charge for our preaching shows you that it's of real value. Maybe you've come across that wisdom that I've often heard said, actually, when people are organising an event that we should charge for it, because if it's not charged for, people won't value it. Now, there might be some truth in that, and I'm not saying it would be wrong to charge for any event, but the gospel should not be charged for. The ministry of God's word is not something that you can buy or pay for. It is a gift, the grace gift of God and salvation. But Paul um, was uh, um, not going to silence his boasting, verse 10, he said, in the regions of Achaia, that's their region. And why? Not because he doesn't love them, but because he does. He wants them to love Christ and be faithful to him. So he's going to continue to try and undermine the claim of those who are boasting in their mission, verse 12, who are saying that they're apostles like Paul. In reality, verse 13, they're false apostles, deceitful workmen. They're like Satan, who disguises himself as an angel of light, verse 14. And they are servants of Satan. This is strong language, verse 15. Their end will correspond to their deeds. And that must, of course, make us wonder, are there false apostles, false prophets, false teachers like that infecting the Christian church today? Undermining the faithful ministry of God's word in conflict with the apostles, the original, the true apostles who were those authorised witnesses of the resurrection. Sadly, I have absolutely no doubt that there are. One of the ways of noticing them are that they are people who love to have attention for themselves. They have charismatic and strong personalities and they've never learned to rein those in and perhaps they don't even want to. They want to be liked by everyone. They want to have the platform and the profile. They go around being very, very nice never saying harsh or challenging things and criticising someone else 
when they do say challenging things because they don't want to hear it. They're good at wheedling their way in to make friends and be warm towards people, but actually they're out for personal gain. Their use of money will be another marker. How do they spend their money? What kind of lifestyle do they aspire to? Do they dress up in fine clothes? Of course, often too, there will be sexual impropriety. They will be um, flirtatious or unfaithful. Money, sex and power are really the three things that those who are not true servants of Christ get led astray to. And even those who are, who begin as true servants of Christ, can be tempted and led astray by Well, Paul is wanting to emphasise what a true apostle is. Those appointed by Jesus as witnesses of the resurrection with authority to lay the foundations of the church. Uh, And the pattern of ministry is not about looking for the most gifted or charismatic person. It is about looking for humble, faithful servants of God who will faithfully stick to the apostolic gospel that Paul and others gave to us, who will seek to betroth us to Christ. And I love that image. And I'll leave you with this this thought. A while back, it made me think, well, if this is true, we are betrothed to Christ, waiting for the wedding day when we are united with him eternally in person. Doesn't that mean that our church gatherings are are, uh, wedding rehearsals? Doesn't it mean that evangelism is like matchmaking? It's a love relationship with Jesus, so stay faithful to him. Praise him, learn from him. When you gather with God's people, help them to focus on him. If you're preaching the word, bring people to Jesus. Make much of him and little of self. I betrothed you, Paul says, to one husband. Let us be faithful to Jesus.